0: this morning we're going to look at this passage from 1 Timothy chapter 4. Paul is writing to Timothy. He knows Timothy well because he recruited him to his missionary team as is recorded in Acts chapter 16 when Timothy was a young Christian man. Uh, He was a man of good repute in the churches of Lystra and Iconium that Paul was passing through at the time. Timothy was perhaps then only maybe 18, possibly 20 years old. His mother was a Jewish Christian and his father was a Greek. And now, uh, when this letter of 1 Timothy is being written, Timothy is the pastor of the church in Ephesus, where Paul had spent perhaps the longest time uh, of his uh, ministry to the Gentiles. And this letter was written after the events uh, of the book of acts of the apostle acts 28 is finished and this letter is probably written several years after that maybe ad 63 65 timothy is now about 33 years old and paul's theme as he writes to timothy is summed up in 1 timothy 3:15 he says i write so that you may know how to con- you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God which is the church of the living God the pillar and ground of the truth and Paul addresses this issue in this letter through two main thrusts one concerns sound doctrine and the other is about building a godly character for Timothy to build a godly character in himself and in his congregation and um, uh, in 1 Timothy 1, 1.3, which we'd read, uh, Paul opens by saying, I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. And secondly, um, he says, to develop a, a, a godly character in self uh, and his congregation, as we shall see that uh, Paul, in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, sets out the requirements for those who have an office in the Christian church. And it's all about issues of the character, godly character. So Paul starts with an exhortation to Timothy to to teach sound doctrine himself and to tell others not to uh, teach uh, unsound doctrine. So Paul exhorts Timothy Uh, in the passage we've read, uh, by expounding six truths. And we're going to consider them this morning. Now, in this world of fake news, it's good to know that there is such a thing still as truth, truth we can rely upon. But even a couple of thousand years ago, politicians were uncertain what truth was. Pilate, the chief politician in Judea at the time, said to the Lord Jesus Christ, didn't say, what is truth? Well, Jesus had already said what truth is. He says, thy word, O God, is truth. And Jesus had taught his disciples that the truth shall set you free. Truth is very important. And uh, the fact is that some things are true and some things are false, And good ministers, Paul tells Timothy in verses 6 to 7, are to teach the truth. The Christian faith has truths. In fact, it is a series of truths that can be known, understood, and believed, verse 6. And good Christian ministers are to teach the truth, verses 6 and 7. As a good Christian minister, Paul's telling the Timothy, you should be discerning and selective. Verse 7, he says, have nothing to do with myths and old wives tales, which are in distinct contrast to the truth about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying to Timothy, get rid of the rubbish and concentrate on the good stuff, the important stuff. So that first issue for Timothy, of course, is focus what should you give your attention to is it good or bad is it helpful or hindrance is it fact or fiction that's why verse 6 starts with if you point these things out to the brothers which things why the fact that deceiving spirits and demons are deliberately misleading people with false teaching and false teaching is one of Paul's themes through this letter from its opening verse, verse 3 in 1 Timothy 1, 1.3. And it's right there to the closing of the letter in 1 Timothy 6.20, that Timothy is to keep the congregation away from false doctrine, from myths, from endless genealogies, from unhelpful speculation on issues that can't be proven one way or another, from godless chatter and from false knowledge. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, these lead you away from the faith. So my question to you this morning is, what have you filled your time with this week? Eh? Is it some... What have you... Immersed your attention in this week. Is it good or bad? Is it helpful or hindrance? Was it fact or fish fiction? Was it something driven by the doctrine of demons? Because it's the demons, Paul says in verses one to five of one Timothy four, that are aiming to cause you to depart the faith by having you focus on all these other issues instead of the important issues of sound Christian doctrine. Now, Paul backs up this approach in his own teaching, emphasizing that what he is teaching is the truth, verse 9. This is a faithful saying, he says, and worthy of all acceptance. And verse 11, these things command and teach. So you have to counter falsehood in the church by teaching the truth and sound doctrine, verses 6 to 7. So our question this morning is to ourselves, are you filling your head with controversial speculations rather than nourishing yourself by feeding on the truths of the faith? Have nothing to do with godless myths, verse 7. That's why Timothy is to concentrate. And we here at Belvedere, are to concentrate on godliness which can only be found in our Lord Jesus Christ. So the first truth, Paul tells Timothy, is that good ministers teach the truth. Secondly, he tells uh, Timothy, don't let the world pigeonhole you. Now we're always categorizing people, aren't we? We're always putting them into pigeonholes, into categories. We walk into a room and we immediately see the old and the young, we see men versus women, we see tall people or short people, thin or fat, we see, you know, put people into categories, good looking or not, Brexiter or Remainer, whatever the categories are, we naturally do it, don't we? Um, People used to notice my very bright ginger hair first. They notice it from 40 yards away, 100 yards away. I last no longer. Uh, But what do they see when they look a little deeper at you and me? Don't judge a book by its cover. Uh, Don't be pigeonholed according to the world standard, Paul is telling Timothy in verse uh, verse 12. It says, don't let the world characterize you by your outward youthful looks Because we have to remember that God's categories are different to ours. God's category is sinner or saved, Christ like or not so Christ like. And Paul urges Timothy to develop characteristics that really stand out in this dark and fallen world. He is to be an example to believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. That's a, that's a tough list, isn't it? Am I an example in those areas? Are you? In speech, Timothy is to say the right things, the truth in love. In life, Timothy is to do the right things. He's got to be diligent. He's got to be hardworking. He's got to set goals and achieve them. In love, he's got to act the right way towards others out of the very best motive their good even at the cost to himself in faith he's got to believe the right things the true things about god and christ and man and impurity he's got to act correctly outwardly yes I covered that before but he's also got to be correct inwardly purity is not something that can be painted on before we step out the door in the morning it's about what is inside what is inside now we've got to stop judging others you know but we've rather got to judge ourselves What category would you put yourself in if you gave yourself a fair assessment? Would it include words like faithful, reliable, godly, loving, kind, polite, truthful? You know, God sees everything and he judges correctly. What category would God put you in? Would he say... You know, if God was to write our epitaph on our tombstone, would he say, here lies X, never reached his true potential because they were lazy? Hmm? What would he write on your tombstone, God, as an epitaph? <laughs> so how do you get out of being pigeonholed by the world, Timothy? Well, you do it, Paul says, by displaying the characteristics of a saved person by showing Christ in you in all these areas. Paul, how on earth can I be like this? Because yes, I'm saved, but like a, a pig in mud, I just can't move forwards. That's often our problem, isn't it? It's often my problem. So the second truth is don't let the world pigeonhole you. But the third truth is this. Progress can be made, verses 7 and 8 and 13 to 15. Progress can be made. Paul says in verse 7, the second part of it, train yourself to be godly. Now, this training is hard work, verse 10, because he says, for this we labour labor and strive. And Paul likens training to be godly to physical exercise. Now, have you ever tried to get yourself physically fit? Now, most of us on the 1st of January start, you know, we get that gym membership signed up and we're gonna go three to four times a week. And um, by the 5th of January, uh, we're just paying for something that we'll never achieve. Uh, Perhaps you wanna do a 10K race or a marathon. Well, training is hard work. In fact, it's exhausting, and it requires a very high level of commitment. Now, Paul says being physically fit does have benefits. It does, not it? You, look, you feel great. You look a bit better. Life is improved, and perhaps even active life is prolonged. But it's only good for a short time while we are in this world, since our bodies will die and decompose soon enough. However, godliness, as Paul points out, delivers solid benefits in this life and also in eternity to come. Verse 8. So, what spiritual progress have you made these last five years? Hmm? What progress are you planning on making this next year? Do you even have a plan? Or is it entirely accidental? It's a truism, isn't it? That failing to plan is the same as planning to fail. So what spiritual progress have you made? And what's your plan to ensure that you're going to make some uh, physical progress? Well, just imagine I want to get physically fitter. And I just hope that somehow it may happen. In the next six months. Eh? The accidental diet. Is that going to be the next fad? The accidental diet? What chances do you think it's got? No, it's got no chance, has it? Set goals. You know, if you want to get fitter, if I want to get fitter, I should go for a bike ride, say, three times a week, ten miles at the time. I shouldn't eat any junk food. Perhaps I should swim a hundred lengths. Uh, So many times a week or or whatever. Now I will be fitter in six months' time. And Paul says, exercise to godliness. So what's your plan? Well, what should it consist of? Well, it should start by knowing sound doctrine. How are you going to know sound doctrine? Read God's word and become familiar with it. Now, this is hard work, isn't it? It's easy on January the 1st to do that extra bit of exercise, but on October the 7th, it's that much harder to keep on reading your Bible through in one year, isn't it? Eh? It's hard work reading God's Word, but we have to exercise ourselves to godliness. It's hard work, but it's very beneficial. What else should we do? We should pray. And we should pray more. That's hard work, isn't it? How much time do you spend praying by yourself? Eh? Is that the minutes per month that we spend time praying by ourselves? We should pray and we should pray more. And do we meet with the brethren regularly, consistently to do them good and to do ourselves good. I don't know if you know, but uh, if you wanna get on a physical exercise plan, sometimes it's good to do it with a friend, isn't it? I'll meet you at such a time tomorrow, and we'll go to the gym. Years ago, um, I actually did get a gym membership, and uh, my youngest son, Adam, uh, and I, and we went three times a week to the gym. I would get him up or he would get me up at 6.30 in the morning and we went to the gym. When he left to go to university, that gym membership for me became a waste of money. But while the two of us were spurring each other on to it, it did us both good. Maybe you should be meeting with someone, a husband and a wife meeting together for prayer, for Bible study. Encourage yourself and encourage somebody else. Exercise yourself to godliness. Or are you a Christian just drifting through life? Train yourself to be godly. Know who Jesus Christ is and be like him. Train yourself to be godly and enjoy the benefits even though it takes hard work. Paul says in verse 13, be devoted. What does that mean, be devoted? You've got to make it a consistent and determined goal to be devoted. Give attention to it, verse 15, and continue in being diligent. Train yourself to be godly because truth number three is that progress can be made. Truth number four. Verses 12 to 15, progress can be seen. Not only can progress be made, but progress can be seen. It's the outcome of training yourself to be godly. Verse 15, others can see it. Progressive sanctification is real and it's objective. Now, to get physically fit, as I've said before, requires hard work. You need to repeat whatever the exercise is that you've chosen at least three times a week, I believe, for it to give you a physical benefit. Likewise, spiritual growth is hard work and requires application. Progress can be seen. Verse 12, it says, Be an example to believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity, now these are all highly visible things. Every aspect of Timothy's life should show his spiritual progress in godliness. So how are we doing? Eh? How am I doing? How are you doing? At this point, when Paul writes the letter, Timothy's been a Christian perhaps 20 years, and he is still to make. Progress that is visible to all. It wasn't all done and dusted, Timothy's progress, shortly after his conversion. It's ongoing, it's visible, and it's visible to all. Paul says in verse 13, Till I come, give attention to public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to doctrine. Timothy's ministry is to be visible and public, reinforcing his own visible progress so that others know how Timothy is himself making progress. Verse 14, don't neglect the gift that was in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying of hands of the eldership. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all he's got to do what he should do and it will drive his progress and make it more visible verse 16 take heed to yourself and to the doctrine continue in them for in doing this you will save yourself and those who hear you so progressive sanctification is real and it's objective Progress can be seen at every stage of a Christian's life. As a new Christian, progress should be seen. And as a Christian of 40 years, we should still be making progress. Are you progressing? Can you see it? Can others see it? What a challenge God's word is to us. Now, truth number five you can make a radical difference in this world. Sometimes you, you, you hear you know, people getting interviewed to say, be a doctor or something. I want to make a difference. All right? Well, the outcome of the progress uh, in the Christian life can make a real difference. Because, as it says in verse 16, if we progress, if Timothy progresses, we will save both ourselves and our hearers. Now, that's a radical outcome, and it's a desired outcome. Why is it a desired outcome? Well, let's just look at some situations in the secular world. Do you know the lose-lose situation? Because Paul's talking to Timothy about a win-win situation, isn't he? You'll save both yourself and others. Uh, But the lose-lose situation. Imagine you've got a company, a business, and you make parachutes. And uh, you and your customers, you're flying off for a jaunt somewhere, and the plane starts crashing. So you use the very parachutes that your business is based upon, you and your customers, and they all fail. That's a lose-lose situation, isn't it? And such is the position of those who promote and trust in false religions. The blind leading the blind, and both fall into the ditch. That's not the outcome that Paul is exhorting Timothy to go after. What about the win lose situation? Eh? That's like an investment scheme that only delivers value for the organiser of the investment. Uh, Bernie Madoff, anybody heard of him? How many millions, billions did he take? He made money for himself, but his investors lost the lot. And we recognise that as a scam. That's not the outcome that Paul is suggesting uh, to Timothy, that he himself is saved, but all his congregation are lost. no. Or what about the lose-win situation? Eh? The congregation save, but not the preacher. Do as I say, but don't do as I do. Yeah, Can you imagine you make a living selling life insurance and your customers buy that life insurance and when they die, their families can be fed and housed. But when you die, without ever buying your own life insurance... Your family is on the streets without a roof over their heads. Eh? That's the lose-win situation, isn't it? He saved others, but he couldn't save himself. That's how they mocked the Lord Jesus Christ when he was on the cross. How terrible it would be if a Christian pastor was in that situation. Of course, though, they mocked the Lord Jesus Christ on that cross. Three days later... He had risen triumphantly from the grave, saving an enormous number of people and, crown, and, and as a result being crowned with all glory and honour. The Bible isn't after the lose-win situation. It's after the win-win situation, isn't it? <coughs> eh? In this world, it's often dog-eat-dog and we get on by trampling upon the backs of others to raise ourselves up but the bible isn't teaching this is it it's about the win win situation godliness is profitable for all things and uh, for this reason we watch our life closely don't we so that we can save both ourselves and our hearers by putting our trust in the saviour of mankind and setting an example to others so that they too will trust in the saviour of mankind. And now we come on to our sixth and final truth. It's in verse 10 and it's in verse 16. Only some are saved. Verse 10. For this we both labour and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the saviour of all men, especially of those who believe. Some people find this verse difficult Now, let me say this, this verse does not mean that all mankind is saved. Otherwise, the closing statement that God is the saviour of all, especially of those who believe, wouldn't make any sense at all. And Paul would not need to exhort Timothy in verse 16 to take heed to the doctrine so that himself and his hearers would be saved. Now, this verse is telling us several things. It's telling us that God is the sustainer of all human life, past, present, and future, providing us with food, preserving our lives, doing us good, showing mercy and grace to each and every soul on the planet each and every day whilst we we have breath. In that sense, God is the saviour of all men. How is God especially the saviour of those who believe? Well, God is especially of the the Savior of those who He has bought with His own blood shed on that cross. God is especially the Savior of those united to Christ in His life, death, and resurrection, cleansing them from their sin through His atoning work on the cross, granting them faith and belief. God saves. He is the saviour. He is God our saviour. God is the saviour of those who put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We who do believe, we're saved by grace, not of ourselves, but we've put our trust in the living God as a result of being saved because God will especially sustain us with his good care and grace in our gospel work, even though it's hard work, and even though we suffer reproach from an unbelieving world. And we take the message of salvation through Christ to all men and women, since there is no other name given under heaven by which we may be saved. We take a message of salvation in Christ that is suitable for all men and women. And we take a message of salvation in Christ that is sufficient for all men and women. Indeed, all types of men and women from every tribe, nation, and tongue will believe. But not all men and women will believe. Only some are saved. So the question for yourself is, do you believe? Are you saved? Have you seen that there is a holy God? And have you seen that your sin alienates you from him? Do you see that that this life is short and there's a judgment? And that as you stand before the judgment throne of Jesus Christ, if you stand on your own merits, you're lost. Only those who stand before the judgment seat of the Lord Jesus Christ, who have been purified by washing in his blood, who, have been, who are counted righteous by being covered in his good life, will be saved. So do you believe? Are you saved? Or do you enjoy the good and graceful provision of God in this present world? only to have it removed in the next because of your unbelief and because of your sin. This verse tells us that not everybody believes and as a consequence, not everyone is saved. Our sixth truth is only some are saved. Are you one of them?